When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're just slowly flying the plane into the mountain right now. Oh, no, there's no mountain. There's no plane. We're just in the puddle of (laughs) shit on the ground. (laughs) But it's okay. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a writer. writer, But... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Andrew Lipstein, who is a writer based in Brooklyn. His debut novel, Last Resort, is out now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in the U.S. and Wiedenfield and Nicholson in the U.K. His second novel, The Vegan, will be published in July 2023, also by FSG and WNN. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Do people say Giroux or Giroux? Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I say Giroux myself. I think that's what I said. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that's right. We're making it right. As a former, as a former FSG. Can say Lindsay, come on. I know. Didn't you take the test when they bought your books? I'm so pathetic because I remember talking to someone and they were reading some book that I wanted a copy of and they were like, oh, but it's on Macmillan. So you could easily get a copy. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't even know. I did not know that until you just said it. Oh, good. Okay. Well, but yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I feel better. Andrew, will you please read to us? Um, Happily. So this is from the first uh, few pages of Last Resort. Caleb is brilliant, he said, not listening. Brilliant. He was looking past my ear to the bar where I assumed our server must be or some other woman. That our waitress wasn't conventionally attractive didn't stop him from making a face at me after she'd introduced herself and walked away. I had mirrored it raising my eyebrows and sucking in my lips before taking a sip of water to break the moment. His eyes came back to me. He clasped his hands, placed them on the table, and began talking. I could hardly listen. I couldn't stop thinking of the affectations infecting his words. Do get in touch. Have a go. If I could be so daring. Unearned pauses, overemphasized mm-hmms, and how rampant it is in the book world and elsewhere like the cafe by my apartment stocked with people who dress like artists on weekends but spend their weekdays on Slack. He ended his brief soliloquy with something about Mavis Gallant, whom I never read and whose name I thought was pronounced differently. I looked it up when I got home. He was right. This was all in response to a new story idea, which was a response to him asking me if I had my next book in mind. Next book, as if the one we were meeting to discuss were already in the past which is supposed to be a seg from our aimless banter to real business talk. When I told him the new story idea, a party of 30-somethings where everyone slowly realizes death is present, literally in the room, in disguise, and by the end of the night, it will take one of them, so that the entire time they all have to prove how full of life they are. He said, a word or two before I finished, love it. 
which made me hate it and regret ever having dreamt it up. Ah, gallant, I said. He looked at his hand, rubbed his pointer and middle fingers together, then scanned the room. He said he wished we could smoke in restaurants and then, thanks Giuliani, which I thought was an ironic riff on, thanks Obama, which is already ironic. Also, the smoking ban was Bloomberg, not Giuliani, but he was apparently sincere. This tarnished some of my assumptions about him, mainly that he should be unflaggingly smooth. Ellis Buford was a quote unquote, big shot agent, a phrase I'd heard from too many people with too little irony. He was taller than I'd expected, but less handsome in some inscrutable way. I disliked him the second we shook hands when he apologized for being late. Please forgive my truancy, he'd said, but all of that didn't matter. Nothing mattered in the face of the fact that he was a big shot agent who was going to change my life. Yes, the phrase is ridiculous, but the concept transcends ridiculousness. The concept being power. Big shot. Those two words were the first my lips formed, the second we hung up, after he called me out of the blue, on the Saturday morning, four days before our lunch. I was lying on my couch, drinking coffee, listening to John Wizards at full blast, my roommate was out of town, and playing chess online with my computer on my stomach a ritual I don't normally interrupt before it fulfills its purpose, a bowel movement, when my eyes wandered to the window, catching sight of a building in the distance. I recognized it and was taken aback. The building was in Brooklyn Heights, meaning that my window didn't look south but west. That I'd been mistaken about the cardinal orientation of my apartment for the year I'd lived there was unbelievable. I was someone who could point north any time of day. I considered finishing the game, but I was going to lose anyway. So I put on my slippers and walked downstairs and around the apartment until I found my fire escape. I turned around and found the building again. I was right, I realized. I'd been wrong that whole time. And that's when my phone rang. Caleb, he said. Yes, I said. This is Ellis Buford. I've just finished your novel. Do you have time? Andrew, I was curious. There's, I feel like there's so many different... Uh superstitions around writing about writing and in a first novel you just tackle it head on i was wondering if you had any trepidation going in uh having the kind of the heart of your novel be about uh writing itself um i I would say i didn't where i was coming from when i started to write this was i had already tried and failed to write um, I don't know, somewhere between four and six other novels, which were so far from my lived experience. And I felt had failed for that very purpose that when I started this, I kind of consciously was choosing to do something I hadn't done before. And maybe perhaps having that, all that failure under my belt already, it kind of um, preempted any fear I, I might've felt otherwise. Mm. When you say that you tried and failed, is it that you wrote them, you liked them and you sent them out and there was no like response or you uh, wrote them yeah. and you hated them? No, well, f- yeah, more, no, the first, the first, okay. I mean, I, I had gotten an agent for a couple of them and, and the agent couldn't sell them. So I had, I had been getting closer and closer. And then, you know, when you get an agent, you sort of feel like you will get the book sold. And that, that was not the case for, for two or three times for me. Oh, yeah, Alex and I have learned that. <laughs> learned the hard that <laughs> it's not something. It's not something I I wish on anyone. Truly, no, me like, either. Even, it's just it, when I think of other people going through it, I can't help but just my heart drops. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause you feel like you're in the safe arms of your loving daddy, you know, and he's not going to let you fall off the swing <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're just like pumping your legs higher and higher, you know, you're Ready just like, go. Yeah. 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 And then daddy's like, uh, this oh, we're slowing down. <laughs> Daddy has a shotgun and he is absolutely oh, no. whipping you in the face with the, the oh butt end God. of it. That would that would be easier. Alex it's is still true. processing if you can't tell. Um so was that agent different than the one that had that you sold last resort with? Well, so the funny thing is I actually sold last resort without an agent. Mm-hmm. I um <laughs> I, I had gotten an agent who I actually really loved. And she brought it to a great point editorially and she couldn't sell it. And I asked her if I could sell it myself, you know, being just completely desperate. And I sent it to a few editors under a pseudonym and eventually, and I actually sold it. I actually, I mean, I technically sold FSG, the world rights, but I had gotten my UK editor myself as well. What? That is insane. (laughs) How, what was your pseudonym? The pseudonym was the it was Caleb Horowitz, the protagonist of the book. Oh come on! Oh wow! So they, were they like, <laughs> "Is this you?" Or like, was that kind of what was freaking them out? Oh, oh well, you know, actually, both, both my you. I mean, you know, the the book is about publishing, obviously, and and when you use a pseudonym, I think, you know, it, it ignites people's imagination and they wonder who who this person is, which is sort of why I thought it would it would work because they would think I was somebody, which I'm not. You know, they would think I was like someone that they might even know, but was using a pseudonym. And so how the, did they know it was a pseudonym? Did you say? I'm, I said it was a pseudonym. Yeah. I mean, I you're mean, once a genius. I, once I started reading, but, but my, my first conversation with my U.S. editor was, um, he said, the, like, basically the first thing, you know, do I know you? And when I first spoke to my UK editor, he, he needed to make sure I wasn't like a particular person who he almost suspected I was, who's like a persona non grata. Before Ooh. he continued the conversations, did he tell you who it was? Um, he did, but I just have a feeling I shouldn't say. Okay. Oh, for sure, yeah. Alex Higley. Oh, it was, actually, it was <laughs> Alex Higley. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they hate grocers. Guy's good yeah. the guys, known for being wrong in every way, and he's such an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> I really love that you read the part that you read because um, I can rem- remember having similar lunches and feeling like this is it. Like I'm going to be, uh, you know, a name now, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) I'm going to be having like all these lunches all the time. Like it's going to, I'm going to be living in the Greenwich village somehow, even though I live in Chicago and also it's going to, I mean, it's it's because it's part of the fantasy, right? You already feel the one you already feel like you are, it's a a piece of success already with that one. Yes. It's like, this is what I imagined when I thought I'm going to be, uh, if I thought I'm going to be a successful writer, it was having this lunch with someone important. Exactly. In a, in a sort of fancy place, which is, you know, a little bit pretentious, but you're like, this is, this fits, this fits the image. So I like it. This is just what people do when they're successful, right? Like they don't go to Olive Garden to celebrate their successes like I do, you know, but the other thing about that part is, and throughout the book, there's so many funny really funny like I laughed aloud lal quite often but they're also so cringy and so um sometimes like almost you're peeking out from your fingers as you read because we are given all of Caleb we are given well all of the Caleb that he knows um 
we are so close to him it, and it created naturally creates attention, you know, like this, this sort of closeness. It's not, it's not a claustrophobia, but it's, it's like a tight space. We feel comfortable that, that we're in his head and that we're, he's giving us, he's given us the goods, you know, because he, he is quite honest about things. Like at one point he, he says he could fart, you know, like as he's leaving, he wants to like fart as he leaves. <laughs> it's like a <laughs> fuck you to some people. And I wanted to know, cause I feel like that that's crucial to the way that the, the novel plays out. And it's crucial to the way that the, you know, that the plot is believable. Um, so in that, was he always that close when you were writing him? Was it always this first person extremely close in his head or was it different when you first started writing it? No, it was, it was definitely that way from the beginning. The idea being that, you know, I could, if I could be him, if I could really, if it could really be a first person experience for me, where I almost felt like I was acting and him, then I could even have his flaws kind of appear in a more natural way than mm-hmm. like, I'm going to write this in here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was there from, from the very start for sure. Do you welcome people talking to you about auto fiction or are you like, please leave me alone? Um, I've had a lot of people who know me talk about the book as if Caleb was me as far as oh wild as far as say asking if the book was autofiction. I mean, I, th- I think it's so obviously not autofiction in like structurally because yeah, it's, it's, so, so, it's driven by plot and exactly. you know, yeah, that's I mean, that was the thing I truly loved about the book was it, it's like it's so well plotted and it felt in a way like a throwback to me i was like this reminds me of some of the uh i don't know it reminded me of some of the first person voices that i like really fell in love with like a powerful well plotted first person novel is a favorite thing of mine i thought of like the sports writer which is a unique example i guess but i just i don't know the sports writer not by frederick no uh uh ford uh richard ford oh, richard ford Wait, is that one that takes place over July 4th? No, that's Independence Day. Yeah, it's the next one. But it's exactly, I mean, you're, yeah, it's the same. That's in the sequel to Sports Air for sure. I mean, that, the, I read Independence Day and I just remember it making me like more sad than any book I've ever oh read. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I never read the third book in the trilogy, but I love the first two. Um. Anyway, yeah, did, was, was that, uh, was that, heavily plotted um approach present in the previous attempts with the novel andrew or was that something that you you had much more um uh much more in in mind with uh, last resort yeah definitely definitely was not there as much and it's funny i mean i think the answer is definitely yes it was more in mind with last resort i don't think i ever consciously had that thought But, you know, every time you fail and fall on your face in such a huge way like that, and in a way that's incredibly emotionally painful, you do inevitably learn a lot of lessons from that. And I remember, you know, having a few conversations with an agent for a previous manuscript just about the term stakes. Like she was kind of obsessed with the term stakes. And I think a younger, you know, more ego-driven me was like unable to concede that you would need to think of a novel in that way in order to make the plot work 
Um, and I didn't really think about last resort in that way so much, but the agent who took it on and didn't end up selling it, she had us redo a lot of the second um, part. There's three parts of this in a way so that the, so that the arc was more natural. And I think through that process, I did learn a lot and made this book more plotted in that way. And while I'm writing my, I'm now writing my third book now, my second's coming out next year. Um, I wrote those from the very beginning, maybe a lot more with an arc in mind. Mm. I, I was so impressed and excited by how you kept upping the ante um, in the book with, with, with the plot. Like I thought the tension with whether or not Ellis would ever find out would last a lot longer. Like I thought it would be like one of the main sources of tension as I read the book. And then it just, he just tells him, he just comes out and tells yeah, him. That- and it happens again and again and again, where you're like, oh man, that's, that's, that's big news. I, I, you know, he's probably going to keep this to himself. And then he just tells people or he just does it. <laughs> I thought that was so admirable, like as writer to writer, I, I just, I was so impressed by that because it makes things harder for you, but it also makes things more interesting as you're writing. Right. A hundred, a hundred percent. That is, that was definitely on my mind. So when I, when I, I do obviously write very plotted books, and I'll continue to do so. I don't really have an, an, an um, a proper outline to begin with. I basically have now in this book and the next two, like always started with a big plot point that I feel like will come at the end of the novel. Your instinct is like a hundred percent spot on. And then I, and then I basically have a conversation with myself, like, you know, am I, if I'm just building up to something that I know is going to happen, I'm going to get bored with it. And the book can't possibly be interesting to a reader if I'm already mm-hmm. bored with it. Mm-hmm. So let's just move that. Let's just, let's just crunch this. Let's put pressure on this and move it earlier. And, and, you know, have everything that comes before, you know, I'm not, I'm not, there's no fat in it. I'm not wasting anything. And then from there, as you say, like I'll put myself up to the challenge and see if I can't come up with something better. And then that happens like two or three or four more times. Um, And the result is that I'm super interested in the book. And I think that comes through more to the reader. If I feel like I'm not just biding my time until I hit some plot point. I think ultimately too, it's easier to draft that way because there's a way where you can delude yourself into thinking you're a genius if you're building up to one big reveal or one big insight. And instead it's just like, Nope, this is what I got. Let's put the cards on the table onto the next, onto the next, keep going. And it makes the process like you're saying, you're, you're walking with the reader alongside you as opposed to, you know, smoke and mirrors. And I think that the, it actually ends up making writing a novel easier ultimately i I think of this i do a similar thing but i think of it as as digging a hole i just think of like all right let's just keep digging this hole because uh gotta eventually climb out i guess let's make it a fun climb up yeah let's make it as deep yeah you never want to stop digging and say i'm just gonna whenever there's not motion or whenever you're biding your time exactly you know a, a novel always has to be moving whether it's through character or um, an exchange of information or, you know, displacement or something. And if you're just in a holding pattern, I don't think that's, that ever works. Exactly. It reminds me of Alex, did Stuart Dybeck say this to you that have, have your character want something? No, it was uh, a glass of water. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. uh, Patrick Somerville oh, said one point. time, Oh, I don't know. Uh, he, he, he might've said that, uh, I always, I always say this thing Patrick Somerville said where he said, if you don't know how to write a novel, have one character go after one thing. 
Yeah. And there you go. <laughs> and it's actually the best advice I ever have gotten about writing novels. I feel like it's a, it's a great way to get into it. If you're, if you're struggling and, and don't really know how to keep that motion um, persistent as you were, as you were saying, Andrew. It, Vonnegut also said every character should want something, even it is, even if it is only a glass of water. Oh, that's great. I actually didn't know that line. Was there anything in the pacing or in the plotting where you took a turn with the, with the narrative and, and realized it was the wrong turn? Um, well, sort of. So we had actually found an editor who wanted an exclusive submission, um, we being the agent I'd worked with, and he, he basically wanted the entire ending rewritten. And um, it was unexpected. I, of course, did it because it was my only option at the time. And all while I was doing it, just feeling terrible because I thought I was doing all this work for one person who might just you know, not like the book. And he ended up basically ghosting us, which, you know, but, but, um, but the new ending is the ending as it exists today. And I think it is, you know, so much greater than what it was. Um, but that was basically the only time that I have probably ever really structurally rewritten a book. Hmm. Um, what was was the original ending? The original ending was that Caleb, Oh, well, I don't, I don't know if I can reveal this without spoiling the rest of the book. Okay, everyone, a spoiler is ahead. So, you know, Um, so so the Caleb basically hunts down Sophia, and Mm -hmm. she ends up being a nurse who basically just tells him that Avi is writing his own book about his experience. And at that point, Caleb has was trying to find salvation and writing a book about what had happened to him and basically finds out that he's scooped. Um, and I think it was a little bit pathetic and a little bit anticlimactic um, and it didn't stick the landing and, and it wasn't nearly as cringeworthy or interesting or putting Caleb to the test as, as the current ending does. I love the current ending. Um, I, he, there's a, so more spoilers. There's a one-two punch. He gets one from Sandra and he gets one from Sophia, An- Annabelle's her real name, right? Um, <laughs> Cassandra says, you're only happy when you want something or like you always have to want or desire something. Mm-hmm. And um, and he's like, you're right. And then, uh, the, but then later at the very end, when Sophia's like, um, I'm not on the plane. And the reason that you are, it has nothing to do with me. I just, it's, it's so earned at that point. And it's so, it's, it's one of the few times where you can see him clearly outside of himself, you know, cause like, even when I'm cringing, even when I'm like, oh no, oh no, I'm with him. I'm with him. Um, I under, I, at least on a human level, I understand why he's making the decisions that he's making. And those two moments are when I, it really offered such an important glimpse of him that that really rounds all of it out and it just kind of and then to couple that with the last line about how he can't imagine where he's going um it's so beautiful and so gasp worthy (laughs) how did the uh how how did you approach actually drafting last resort from uh, did what was the initial impetus did you was the the avi story the the one that kind of got you in and you felt like you could 
weave in a bit of your own life into into that and kind of combine the two and see what happens or what was like the initial spark yeah the, the initial spark or plot point or conflict was how the first part ends where um these two sort of former acquaintances writers need to come to a compromise that is like at once both completely unnatural but perfectly fits what happened mm. um and, and i as i as i was like um talking about before i thought that was going to come way later in the book and i thought i was going to be building towards that but that was like the beginning of it that this writer is finally finding success and basically um need, needs to needs to basically reach this this tremendous compromise in order to keep what he thought was already in the bank mm. Have either of you had just heard secondhand or maybe experienced firsthand from other writers, like stories where people were like calling dibs on anecdotes that are being told or anything like that, or have seen situations like that go bad in real life? Well, I I actually was inspired by something that's very vaguely similar that happened to me that happened in the book where I had um, basically sent an earlier manuscript that was the last resort in last resort to an agent. And the agent had a reader who was a former, I don't know, friend, acquaintance of mine. Um, and he thought it was similar to his life. Oh my God. Whoa. And it was, <laughs> it was, um, you know, it was, it wasn't his, it wasn't um, like what happens in last resort is plagiarism he never wrote anything. It was more like um, he, it was like uh, a fact or two from his life. Um, and we had like a series of conversations about it. And he sort of at once like admitted the character wasn't him, but also sort of like, I sensed that he wanted it to be sort of in the way that I later give to like the character of um, Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, um, it was that tension of like this desire to sort of be almost like put into fiction that I found interesting. Mm-hmm. It's really scary too. It's really, I feel like there's something just so that just creeps me out about that instinct in a person that wants to be in fiction. I don't know. Maybe it's because I know so many fucking writers, but. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, it feels like a tribute, right? Like, Oh, I'm so interesting that this person had to write me. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like all of our, you know, subconscious dreams about art is that our life is worthy of it. I mean, whenever, like, I think whenever you, even you're looking at a painting and you really allow yourself to feel it, you are, you know, dissolving the part of your brain that's saying, but this isn't reality. You're just letting yourself believe it for a moment. And whenever you read a book, too, and allow yourself to get into it, or, of course, write one, you really have to delude yourself into thinking that there is no line between art and life because life is never good enough for art. And I think there is a drive for people to be put into art and want that to be the case. Um, and that comes from that, that they, they want to exist in art. That would be, that if, if you're an art lover, if you have had an, an art experience where you feel moved, that is like a sublime dream, I think. And, and the going narrative Today, and, you know, since I wrote this, there are a lot of stories like the Bad Art Friend story and the Kristen Repenian story, 
where the person whose life gets taken is also a writer and feels like they are wronged in a significant way in the way of plagiarism. Um, and they don't like being having, having their story taken. But if you look at the history of art, I mean, you have basically one of the greatest um, privileges of being in the aristocracy, you know, in the past a thousand years is that you could commission some of the greatest artists to take your likeness and turn and turn your, your likeness into art and add that special touch to elevate your life out of the realm of life into art. Um, so I don't think it's anything new or weird. I think it's incredibly natural and has to have existed for as long as art has. Definitely. Yeah. I just say, I guess, uh, when I think about some of the limitations of the people who are uh, making the art and being accused of of stealing a likeness, it's just, it's so funny that it's disgusting to me. <laughs> That's all I mean. But yes, of course, of course. No, I mean, yeah. And there's also shitty art too, right? It's yeah, like, oh course. man, my friend who's a shitty short story writer, like <laughs> made me this dumbass character in a short story and it sucked. There that, you go. That, that doesn't feel as, as nice as being an aristocracy and having, you know, no my friend in in high school was a really great artist um and she one day was like she always would drop our friends and she drew me one day and I was so excited because her drawings were beautiful and when she was done she handed it to me and I had these like deep eye bags (laughs) (laughs) and I was like wait no yeah no I don't (laughs) I think I have it somewhere just to remind myself keep myself humble Oh man. Um, did Caleb ever feel far from you or um, like hard to grasp? And, and, and if so, how did you, how did you pull him back? Yeah, I think when he had to make some of the most, you know, consequential decisions in the book, those felt like, I mean, whenever you're having a character make a decision for a preordained plot point, mm-hmm. you really have to, I think approach that intuitively because if it goes wrong, it can feel really contrived and forced and unearned. Um, like you're moving his arms for him. Exactly. And stop hitting yourself. Exactly. The justification isn't there and the reader will think this, the character is just, you know, a mannequin. Um, but yeah, when he, when he makes some of those decisions towards the end, he spoil or um, kisses somebody else while he's, reunion with his ex-girlfriend and you know scenes like that were hard for me to write because I didn't feel like I knew him as well as I had thought maybe because he was there was a greater distance between him and myself or maybe just because I was giving him traits that I found more disgusting than or not disgusting is a strong word but more um more negative than interesting um but yeah I, I feel that I feel that a lot but that's um, so interesting what you said that those decisions you felt like you didn't know him mm-hmm. but you still it, it's such a cognitive dis- dissonance even though in the moment it might not have felt that way but like it, it, you're writing him you know him better than anyone but those moments you felt like very far away from him but they were still happening and they were still true yeah, I think I think that there is there's certain and and this, you know, when I talked about acting and like feeling like I was him, the best case scenario in that is that you're generating 
perspectives or actions that are unexplained but feel real. Mm-hmm. And I think it's okay if you feel far away from a character who you're obviously making decisions for. Um, as long as you and the reader feel like there is real, even if opaque, real justification and decisions underneath that, um, as opposed to an action only satisfying um, a plot necessity. Doesn't it feel like that's the moment when the, like not to be corny, but like when the magic is happening, it's, it's like, that's when, you know, all of us at one point have said like, you know, I just followed it where it was going. You know, I just watched it happen and I wrote it down, you know, and, and I, I, I know that that's silly, but like, that seems like one of those moments where you had constructed such a, uh, I was going to say structure, but I had said constructed. So that feels too close. Um, you know, you had made such a real scaffolding, such a real life that even though he was doing something that felt like far away from you or far away from your knowledge of him, it was still happening, which to me feels like that's, that's what you want as a writer, right? Yeah, I think, well, I think um, that specifically comes down to character building um, that when somebody, when you can, you're basically in the flow, you know, what you said is both a cliche and true. I think Um, when you're just sort of, not having to consciously make decisions, um, but you are at the same time, that comes down to have specificity of character. Um, because any, you know, everyone in the world does, does everything in the world. Specific people cannot do everything in the world. Specific people can only do what they're going to do. And when you build character in just such a specific way and you know that character in the way that the reader knows them too, um, they'll just sort of tell you what, what is natural and what makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if any of the agents that you ended up sending last resort to thought that they were, I don't, I'm blanking on, yeah, if they were, if they were <laughs> Ellis, if they were like, is this me? I mean, did you get any kind of publisher insider feedback from some of that? Um, I got some feedback from editors who said, a couple of editors who said, I think I know who this is. Um, and it's not one person, obviously, but it is a few people and maybe a few of them saw the manuscript, but they didn't, um, perhaps they're like Ellis smooth enough. They wouldn't let on. That's so great. No, my, my wife is, um, is an English, is a, her first language is Danish. Oh, wow. And, and I found that I speak and think in some of the ways that she speaks, which I wouldn't say is more precise, but it is specific to how you would just translate Danish to English. Oh, how interesting. I, I'm glad that you brought her up because in your acknowledgments, you um, you thank her for her criticism and ideas. Um, is, is she one of your first readers when you're writing? I mean, she she's basically one of two readers. Oh, wow. And she, um, I've actually never really had anyone in my life who I have spoken to about books as I'm writing them and even relied on them to help me make decisions um, as I did with her for every, every book I've written since we've met. Um, wow. But she, um, I mean, she, she's a journalist and she is a wonderful, has a great eye for storytelling. And I just really trust her opinion. Like when we, you know, I'm, I, when we see a movie, I'm like hesitant to 
to say what I think because I think she'll maybe have a better opinion. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, tell what me high what praise. I'm to think. <laughs> I mean, that's I, I feel like that's the highest praise. Though. That's, you know, that's we, amazing. Whenever we whenever we watch a movie, we on the count of three give it a rating from zero to ten. <laughs> um, and we saw a movie yesterday, and and she gave it a nine, and I was just floored because I did not think it would be a nine, but that really made me think. What wow. movie was it? It was um, a movie called Official Competition that is in theaters now with um, an Alpi Cruz and it's a Spanish movie about. Um, oh, is it the Almodovar? Almodovar, yeah. No, I don't think so. Oh. No, 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 it's not Parallel Mothers. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Yep, yep. It's like a, it's kind of like a, it has the same, it's totally the same as The Square. It's sort of funny and outside. I love The Square. I like the square a lot more, but it's definitely in the same family of it's the tone and the sense of humor. Oh my God. I'm so out of it. I'm the looking at it right now and I haven't even heard of this movie. Andrew, I know nothing about it. No, we, we saw it in theaters. So oh, okay. I think it's just in theaters. Okay. Now. I only watch things that are on Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> that's you fucking talk about hulu more than yeah it's a, are they a sponsor here what's going on yeah i, I mean, don't know I'm i wish I'm we're willing to, to take anyone's money pretty much so no i just discovered that they seem to have the best streaming like horror um there's some real stinkers on there but but like the best horror that I, the stuff i really like is always on hulu you know there you go so when it comes on hulu i'll watch it I don't know why that's so funny to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Who are your favorite authors, and and are any of any any of them or any of any books that you were thinking about or works of art as you wrote Last Resort? Um, I I I don't even think I can answer the author question because I have whenever I do I always regret it because it never feels quite right. But there was actually a specific book or series that directly inspired Last Resort. And that was the Patrick Melrose novels by Edward St. Aubin. It's uh, I read it basically like in the months preceding starting Last Resort. And cool. um, it's just, I mean, the sense of humor and like just sort of the way that he doesn't care if you think he's funny. I just love so much. When I asked you about your favorite authors, who immediately came to mind? I know you don't want to answer the question and I won't hold you to it, but can, yeah, can sure. you tell me? Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, in the past, I've just said Rachel Cusk and Ben Warner because I really like them, but I feel like that answer is probably the most popular answer. No, I think that's a brave answer because they're so both too. like so actively still working. I think I love that answer because I think people never say that. I, and it also makes such sense when I think about your book. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And most people answer like dead authors. Yeah. People will say, you know, I don't know. Kafka or something. Kafka? Ugh. Oh my I mean, God. I feel, like, I feel like if someone answered that question, Kafka and Shakespeare, <laughs> the, I, mean, that, I think that's the most embarrassing combination. You know, it's like this person maybe attended like third grade. <laughs> that's like when they asked Trump, like what his favorite Testament was. And he's like, both of them. They're all good. <laughs> yeah. I like them both. They're my favorite. Both of them. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Lindsay, what do you say when people ask you that? You were going so hard at Andrew. Let's make you answer it. Yeah, that's a good point, Alex. Thank you. Yeah, you're no and problem. Me too, by the way. Yeah, of course. Am, am, am I being interviewed? Yeah, you are. My podcast. I know. My podcast and yours. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Okay, great question. Uh, 
yeah what is that about why why suddenly can i not think of a single author mm. yeah, it's kind of tough isn't it it's it is tough. Name the best because then it's like really that person's better than than everyone else you've read like that's peak i know i'm trying to think of like if some who could write a book that i'd be like oh my okay well i went i went through a huge uh claire fuller you situation. love Claire Fuller. Yes, you do. I just could not get enough of her. But I don't, I mean, I love her, but I wouldn't, I don't know who's my favorite. My favorite. I don't think of you as talking about <laughs> who only wrote one of those books. <laughs> you write Unsettled Ground. Yes, that's Claire Fuller. Yeah. She she blurred my book, actually. No way. I swear to God, you got some blurbs, my Fair. friend. You got some bangers on oh, here. For the, oh, for the UK edition? Yeah, my my UK editor got her. Oh my gosh, I absolutely love her. You lucky duck. Do you think you're going to go over there for any events? Um, not not for a last resort. Um, when the book came out, I was also in Denmark. Well, I was oh, okay. in I was in New York for the month it came out, but when it came out in the UK, I was in Denmark. Okay. Do you guys live there part of the year? Um, no, we don't, but we go there often. Okay. Yeah. So your next book is The Vegan. Mm, yeah. And that's God, all... I love that title. <laughs> I know that title is so provocative. Uh, yeah, that so wasn't innocent. that wasn't the first title. Both books had a had a previous title before. And the previous title for The Vegan, which I really loved up until I hated it, was Flash and Yearn. Um, Wait, say that again. Flash and Yearn. It's from a Berryman <laughs> poem. It's sort of like the opposite of the vegan in that it's like makes you think of like a fusty dusty <laughs> poetry collection as opposed to the vegan which sounds like obviously the vegan like, holy Fla- shit flash and so urine funny. makes me think about like someone on the dance floor like, you're sad so you're dancing you're flashing and, and yearning oh but the vegan is like it's it pops it pops yeah, I'm was definitely that... for that for the Netflix adaptation with the vegan. Yes, <laughs> yes. Was that was that sold along with Last Resort or? No, I, I so I got an agent after Last Resort who sold, um, the vegan. Okay. And I sold that uh, basically a little more than a year ago. So Andrew Lindsay also sold. Was it both all three of your FSG books to without an agent? Is that true? Okay. I'm really, I didn't know that. Well, my first book was on a small press, so that was without an agent. And then, yeah, but um, then they told my publisher told me you should be writing something because as soon as this book comes out, people are going to say, "What else are you writing? What can you send us? We want." And I didn't believe him, so I didn't write anything. So then I started hearing from a bunch of people, uh, like um, FSG, and at the time, Cal Morgan was at um, Harper and someone from Random House and um, a couple eight, like agents. And they were all like, what are you, what, what else do you have? You know, I'd love to see whatever else you have. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. I'll let you know. <laughs> um, but then, yeah. So then I wrote some stuff. I had a new collection that I tried to send out on my own to some small presses and I blogged about it. Um, just said, like, I sent my new collection out and Um, here's hoping and Emily Bell at FSG was like why didn't you send it to me what's wrong with you and because I didn't think they wanted a collection so I was like you can have it (laughs) here and so she loved it and then she was like but why don't we do a two book deal why don't you send me your novel because I had been lying that I had a novel 
<laughs> and you know to keep her on the hook and uh so I was like oh oh yeah 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 I'll send you my novel like when like uh, like in a couple of days and she was like that works and I was like okay how about like uh, I don't know like 10,000 words and she's like sure sure that sounds good and so I over the weekend I wrote 10,000 words of a novel and I sent it to her that, that and, I, I have many questions for you okay but my but the what you just said made me think like like I I would be so terrified to send 10,000 words I'd just written without having the chance to look at them because I mean, you know, first drafts are famously terrible. Okay. Speak for yourself. (laughs) I know I was terrified and I was drinking so much coffee that like, I took a break to go grocery shopping with my husband, like in the afternoon. And I was vibrating. Like I literally watched my own body vibrating. I was full of terror and fear, but I, I was really worried that um, it was an opportunity that was going to pass me by because there had been so many conversations I'd had before that, where I was sort of like, yeah, yeah, I'll write a novel. Eventually I was like working full time and, um, and doing this reading series. And I, I just didn't have time to be writing a novel. I mean, I actually did. Um, now that I have three kids, I realize how much time I had, but, um, and I felt like, I felt like such a fool and an idiot and an asshole because it had been like two years since my first book came out two years that people were like, send us something, send us something. So I was like, I really, I have to, I have to do this. Um, and Emily had been keeping in steady touch with me. And so I trusted her and I'm sure she knew I'm positive. She knew I was just whatever, you know, like I was just, she just needed something to sell. And it was early in her career too. We were kind of like holding each other up, I think. Um, when was this? I mean, I'm, she's great. Emily Bell is great. She's at um that new imprint. She's now. at Zando now. Yeah. yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So this was in, this was before I had kids. I think it was, I think I like in 2012, maybe I signed the contract. It all went down. Um, did you in 2011? Did you, did you think to get an agent after you had gotten her? Well, she was like, okay, so here's the, we're going to do this deal and you probably want an agent to help you through it. And I had had this long conversation with Patrick Somerville, who is a friend and was like, Hey, you know, I like all this stuff's happening. And, and if you ever want to talk it through, I'm, you know, and so like, we had a long conversation about it and his thought was you should definitely do this deal with an agent. Cause if agents see that you do deals without them, then they might not want to work with you or something. I, and that was his advice. Um, and it was based on his own life experience. Um, and so Emily said, you know, I have some people I'm thinking of that would be good for you. And some of them are, are friends and, you know, I can set you up with, they're all interested in you. So just say the word and you can have calls with all of them. And um, Jim, just like, he's very similar to my mentor that I had in grad school, Dan Beachy Quick, who's a poet. Um, very, they speak the same you know like they're very thoughtful um and so I just I just liked him a lot so I went with Jim and and yeah he's been my agent ever since wow wait so but he but he represented you for that for the first book for the first two yeah I mean it was a done deal but he just like helped I think he helped us secure um world rights I think he helped, he helped in some, in, like, they weren't going to offer me any more money or anything like that. And we weren't going to be able to go and tell like Harper, like, Hey, FSG is, you know, cause that would have been shitty. Um, but he helped me. Yeah. He helped me through the deal and then 
help me sell my next book and then help me sell this book that's coming out next year. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And that is definitely a rare, is definitely, I mean, I think that two out of three of us went that course is pretty, pretty unheard of. Um, it's weird, right? I feel like the way all books get sold though, I mean, that, that is something that comes up again and again when we talk to people is like when you actually hear the whole story of how whatever, whatever it may be, whatever the book is for the most part comes to publication. It's like, holy shit, really? <laughs> like, I know. I, I feel like there's always a beat in there where it's just so improbable, the, the series of events. It's just it's just unlikely that books are published, it, it, yeah, despite uh, there being too many. Yeah, it's yeah. that odd thing. It's like everyone everyone's getting published in a straightforward way, except for the person you're talking to. Yeah, exactly. totally. And exactly. when you were mentioning how you rewrote the ending, and then the guy ghosted you, I can so relate to that. And I know lots of people can because, mm-hmm. like, I rewrote a whole novel in the hopes that this editor would be able to take it, you know, and and that didn't even work out. And it, and I think a lot of like we know as writers, it's all about like showing up, you know, cause we, we know writers in our lives who, who don't anymore. It's not really what they want to do anymore. Their priorities have changed or they just don't like it or whatever, for whatever reason they've stopped showing up. Maybe they will one day. And so to me, it's like, I just have to keep trying. I have to try this next thing or I have to try this next thing. Um, right. I, I agree with you completely. I, I, when you were talking, when you said that that happened to you too, I just, I think there's also, and even the phrase showing up, I think implies or is a window into the natural power dynamics of the relationship mm. where the editor is at the top and then the agent and then the writer. And you're always feeling when you're talking to the next person up or twice up, if you're talking directly to your editor, that they, they have all the power. And, you know, I think it isn't uncommon that an editor asks for an exclusive and then ghosts. Yeah. Um, and it, I was told by my agent, I shouldn't feel bad about it because it happens a lot. Um, but that sort of points to like a larger um, system where, you know, people who have the power, I mean, it, it's, it's miserable to spend however long it takes you, you know, three to six months, three months to two years, who knows, working on something and then to have, you know, not even, not even get a thoughtful email or something. It's like, it's at once like basic sort of human, just, I don't know, empathy, whatever, but then on the flip side, it's like, you know, show up, as you say, like make up for it as a writer, because the truth is that other people will do that. Yep. Um, it sucks. <laughs> it's the only thing I really know how to do. I don't know how to make people buy my stuff. I don't know how to make, the only thing I know how to do is to do the work. And when I, when I like narrow it down to that, it becomes so clear and I, you know, I have to constantly ask myself, what am I, do I still want to do the work? And as long as the answer is yes, then I don't have a problem showing up. Um, that and understanding like, okay, I'm not going to make Caleb money ever. <laughs> right. Like well, I'm doing this for another reason. You're writing literary fiction in the hopes of getting rich, you know? Yeah. Right. Oh, you're crazy. You're absolutely fucking crazy. So my yeah. only fans is. <laughs> <laughs> That's honestly the night. We're not so far away from that. <laughs> no, I know. I know. My husband and I talk about that all the time because we're like, we could do like foot fetish stuff. That'd be fine. That's not bad. Like my kids would be hearing a lot, I've been hearing a lot about foot fetish stuff recently. 
It's a, thing. it's a real it's thing. It's like a foot foot wiki or something. Wiki oh foot. Gosh. <laughs> I feel like the past week I've heard just uh, just a ton. Okay, drop your URL when, when you tweet about this episode so everyone can find your foot. Got those feet. I assume that when you're having writers on, you would include their wiki foot. We uh, typically do. Uh, we didn't We didn't want to ask you to begin the interview. We were typically going to save it for the <laughs> we end. We always so, warm yeah. up to that. So we got to warm you up and then we ask you for the wiki feet. <laughs> for sure. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much. This, this has been really fun. I love yeah, your thanks, book. Thanks, Andrew. This was fun. Thanks so much for having me. This was a ton of fun. Um, I just got back to North Carolina, as you know. Mm -hmm. You had fun. It was great. Mm -hmm. But there was like a definite like like adjustment period because my mom was like, all right, we're going to go down to the lake like after breakfast the first day. And she packed like a cooler of snacks. And when she says we're going to go down to the lake, it's in her backyard. So we have to go down like 75 steps that she's just had built down Mm -hmm. to the lake. And um, so like me and my kids and, and my husband, we did like the requisite, like hour swimming. And we were like, ah, the lake, we've done the lake. Let's go back up to the house, (laughs) you know, let's shower Mm -hmm. and no one's following us. Like my mom's still down there. My stepdad and the other cousins are down there. They're just laking. They're laking. They're just like, and I'm like, okay, well, they'll probably be up soon. I fed my, you know, kids lunch and I got totally dressed and clean and they're still down at the lake. And I was like, what the hell? So I went back down to the lake, got everyone in their swimsuit back down to the lake. We stayed at the lake for eight hours, swimming on and off kayaking. They would like play on the shore. And like on the first day I was like, seemed excessive. But then after that, I was like, I was a lake person after that. I was like, we're going down to the lake and we ain't coming back till dinner time. <laughs> like, oh God. Did the kids just knock out? Did they completely just sleep? They, did. they were, yeah. And, you know, they got to stay up past their bedtime. Um, you know, like they just got to eat. My mom, my mom, who was never like this when I was a kid, has like all the junk food and juice and everything you could possibly want. Hell the yeah. kids just like ate whatever. Oreos? Um, she did have Oreos. They didn't go for those. She had like those fruit loop cereal bars with the frosting on them mm-hmm. she had uh, capri sun so she good. had she was like letting them have so like my kids didn't want soda because they don't like the fizziness but like the, my, the other cousins were down in sodas she had ice cream she oh had she had they made her and my stepdad made donuts and let the kids frost them and decorate them whoa yeah it was like a total like towns ever since we got back has been weeping because he wants to go back and <laughs> I'm like, you're fine. You have a great life. Okay. Your life's not that bad. Oh my God. But yeah, lake life. It was, it was great. It was. That's awesome. It was. Yeah. We were supposed to um, stay with my mom half the time and my dad half the time. And my dad called me the day before we were supposed to go to his house. And he was like, well, I just tested positive for COVID. <laughs> so I was like, sorry. Well, I don't know why I'm laughing. No. I immediately just start fucking laughing. Because that's where we are in our oh lives. Oh God. Oh, Jesus Christ. Anyway, so we stayed at my mom's the whole time and it was wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. What about we've you? Been doing, we've been doing all, uh, yeah, I mean, we're like in full summer mode and I have Saturdays off now, which is crazy. I haven't had Saturdays off in this legitimately 10 years. I'm not making that up. And so my older That's daughter so has awesome. like, you know, she's doing 
golf lessons. She's doing T-ball. She's doing ballet. She's doing all this stuff. So Saturdays are like packed in with stuff for her. And then, um, yeah, that's been great. It's been life. It's, that's life. Yeah, that's salad been, days. yeah. Yeah. It's been totally different to have like so much time together as a family. It's been amazing. I mean, cause even though my wife works from home, she is working. I mean, she's downstairs doing her thing and then, course, you know, yeah. I'll make, I'll make dinner and she'll, I'll make lunch. She'll come up. I'll make dinner. She'll come up. And I mean, a lot of times after we get the girls to bed, she's still working. So yeah. So Saturdays are really fun. And then um, I'm working Sunday mornings and then I have Sunday I'm done at one. So I still have a ton of my Sundays too, which is really great. So that's been, it's been great. It's been a really fun period. We had a friend visit. My friend Willie came and visited, um, which was really great. It was so awesome to see him. Um, So he was goofing around with the girls and they were, uh, they were, (laughs) they just been asking for Willie nonstop now. Like, where's Willie? Cause I think he, this is crazy, but I think he's the first just like buddy I've had at the house because of work and Brit's work and the pandemic. And so they're not used they're not used to having like my friends over. So like when we told them, it was like, Oh, this is daddy's friends coming over. They were like, what? Oh my God. Who like, who? I mean, I don't believe it, but I guess <laughs> if he's going to be here. So yeah, it was fun. They had a blast. Yeah. I get so stressed when people want to come over Oh yeah, because like, this is a home where three children live. So it's, yes, it's not, you know, like they trashed my mom's house. My mom has a brand new house that they built Oh, wow. Glass railings on her staircase. She has an elevator in her house because her parents live there. Damn. My kids, like every surface has been smudged, you know, licked. So um, I was like, bye. Okay, bye. (laughs) So that's what my house looks like. And so whenever people are like, yeah, we should hang out. We should do a play date. I'm like, not not over here. Thanks for the donuts. Bye. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um. But yeah, that's awesome. That's that sounds like a, an auspicious start to the summer. Yeah, it's been good for sure. Um, other than that, my team is in the Stanley Cup Finals. It's consuming Yo. all my thoughts. They got, they got absolutely spanked last night. So tomorrow's going to matter. That's okay. They're going to play with rage tomorrow. That is right, Lindsay. They yes, are. And I know. So yeah, that'll be okay, hopefully. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. That's great. I started Justin Taylor's memoir. Oh, I love it. Ghost. It's so good. It's incredible. I think it's my favorite book that I read two years ago when I read it. Did I read wow. it two years ago? Yeah, it came out in 2020. Yeah. I'd love to talk to him about that as well. Yes. Oh my God. And he just sold a, a new novel. Yeah, he did. So yeah, we can talk about that. And I think I think that is his first gonna be his first fiction in like over 10 years. Wow. I think his story collect his last story collection came out. A long time ago so he's going to be a really interesting person to talk about because that's yeah jesus that's a trajectory all right totally just someone who's completely in it so that's awesome yep cool well i'll talk to you in four days <laughs> okay bye bye bud. i'm a writer but is recorded by alex hickley and me lindsey hunter in our respective basements editing by lindsey hunter music by max loop
Andrew, thank you again. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. I, um, I, I love, I love the show and I can't wait for the episode to be up. Oh, awesome. thank you. Yeah. It's going to come out. Listen, my kids are not in school. <laughs> how, how old are your kids? Nine, six, and three, or, oh my God, nine, six, and four. Wow. I can't even imagine. I have, have kids? I have, I have one. Um, so my son is a little more than a year old. Oh, oh awesome. He's awesome. a peanut. He's, he's a peanut, but I really can't. I mean, he, he's, he's a lot of work. I mean, I think you get used to it more, but. Oh, I, when we had our first, we were like, never again, will we have a child? Holy <laughs> shit. I, how do people do this? And then when he was three, we had our second. <laughs> the jump then, from yeah. one to two kicked my ass. I don't know how, it's really I don't hard. know how you do three, three sons. I mean, three yes, sons three. overwhelming, but yeah. One I mean, to it's two hard, but, me. but it really is going from one to two was way harder on us than going from two to three. Like I had my kids out and about in my infant that. in the, yeah. Yeah. So you, it's, you know, if you have ever, if you're dreaming of a bigger family, it's doable. It's great. It's totally great. It's mostly great with all the requisite, like, why do they scream so much? Why can't I pee with the door closed? Stop looking at me. Why are you reaching into the toilet? Oh, yeah. Right. Why do you live in the toilet? I don't know. I don't want to hear mom 75,000 times a day. (laughs) I just saw a college friend who just had her third and her fourth as twins. Oh my God. No, no, no. And they, they just, they seem to be like losing it, but like somehow totally effortless. That's amazing. Jesus I remember Christ. when Judith, my youngest, was probably like four weeks. We had gone to a neighbor's birthday party that day, and I had made the mistake of eating the um, the buffet <laughs> mac and cheese. I have a I have a hard and fast rule. My husband first made up this rule, and now I, I ascribe to it myself. Don't eat the party food at the birthday parties. Just don't. I don't care if it's prepackaged Doritos. Something oh, bad will happen. It always. So anyway, I made the mistake of eating that because I probably hadn't eaten and I was nursing. And that night I was at that time when she was that little, I was sleeping in the same room as her. So my, at least one of us would be well-rested for the other kids. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. I'm going to shit my pants and throw up and I'm <laughs> nursing her. So oh I had to God. hold her and nurse her, throw up into her diaper pail, <laughs> run into the bathroom and empty myself out on the toilet, still nursing her and trying not to wake anyone else up. And I remember thinking like, first of all, like congratulations to me for pulling this off. (laughs) Like I was ill. That's over now. She's fine. She's still nursing. I can put her to bed and I can lay down, but also, holy shit, I need therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Like this, this shouldn't be real. This is terrible. (laughs) It was like a, um, like a Lucian Freud painting. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just like, like I, can, oh. I can almost like imagine it like in a very in his style. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like, wow, what beautiful brush strokes. Look at the lighting. Oh my God, that's a horror movie that I'm staring at. <laughs> that poor woman. Oh, that poor woman. Anyway, on that note, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See ya. Hey.